You are listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, Episode 2, in which our intrepid Hornhead has his first meeting with the amazing Spider-Man, featuring the talents of Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. Welcome back to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. I am J. David Weeder. You can call me Dave. Here, the premise of the show is simple. I'm Dave, and I talk Daredevil. I mean, it's in the title. In this second episode, we're wrapping up the original yellow period of Daredevil, that brief year before Daredevil got his more traditional, more recognizable red duds. Last week, it was Daredevil number one, and a brief overview of issues two through six. This week, it's the first meeting between Daredevil and Spider-Man. Spider-Man and Daredevil are an interesting duo. Spider-Man is the iconic superhero with the film franchises, the cartoons, the action figure lines, and Daredevil has this show. It's a lot like Spider-Man is Johnny Cash, and Daredevil's Chris Christopherson both come from the same vein. They're valid characters, but Spidey gained the overall appeal. Part of me thinks that is owed more to timing. Spider-Man got his own book a full year before Daredevil, during the main brunt of the Marvel boom, and Daredevil's comic was tucked into the end. Whatever the reason, Spider-Man is one of comicdom's big, proud successes. A character that can pick himself up from absolute devastation and climb back on top. And I'm not just talking about the character Peter Parker in the stories, but also as a franchise, as anyone who was around during the Clone Saga can tell you. Now, what I'm saying here isn't from jealousy, because I am a Spider-Man fan. However, Daredevil ranks a few notches above the webhead in my book. That comes from the fact that I developed more of a reading relationship with Daredevil than Spider-Man, despite being introduced to Spider-Man first through the cartoon Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Now, my predilection for liking Daredevil more may have also come from that cartoon, mainly because that show gave me a misunderstanding of Spider-Man. You can blame Iceman and Firestar for that. Because when it came time to superhero up, Iceman built this awesome ice block around himself and then burst out of it in his iced form. Firestar had flames rise up around her and emerged as Firestar, and then... Spider-Man put on his costume, just slid it on like a normal person, and his webs shot from a mechanical device, his web shooters. And that gave me the false impression that Spider-Man was just a regular guy in a costume. However, it's also timing. I was about three or four when I started watching that cartoon, when it's all about visuals. And I was a bit older when I met Daredevil, a bit more perceptive, so I bought into Daredevil more. Still, Spider-Man is the big star, and Daredevil is his long-suffering wingman within the genre. However, when I look on my wall, I have a print that a good friend of mine and his wife got me for my birthday. It's a John Romita Sr. image of Spider-Man and Daredevil just hanging out on a rooftop. It is gorgeous. Just gorgeous. It's one of my favorite pieces in my Daredevil collection, and I always keep it in a spot that's visible from my desk, because then I can just sit there and stare at it, and I do. Now, it's that image that kind of reminds me that, you know, these two go together like peas and carrots. There's enough similarity to make them friendly, but enough difference to have a bit of a rivalry or a full conflict at times. As mentioned last week, both come from non-traditional families and were given a lot of grief by their peers. Both have origins that rely on being at the wrong place at the wrong time. And both swing over New York as opposed to flying and are tied to the city so much that the city becomes a character in their stories. 
However, their differences are important too. Matt came from the mean streets of Hell's Kitchen. Peter came from Queens. Matt's dad was a rough-and-tumble boxer, where May and Ben Parker were a kind and loving working-class couple. Peter set out to redeem himself for Uncle Ben's death, where Matt set out to avenge his father's death. Peter has super strength and resiliency. Matt has, well, wits and a prayer in that department. And I, I could sit here all day and dissect the two of them and probably make a whole episode just comparing and contrasting the two. However, we have a comic story, because what we do here is read comics. And that will actually do it for me to some extent. Which brings us to this week's comic, Amazing Spider-Man issue number 16. This issue came out between issues 3 and 4 of Daredevil, and has Daredevil facing Spider-Man under the big top with one of the Hulk's villains. So, I'm going to take a quick podcast promo break, and when I come back, we will look at the first crossover between Daredevil, the Man Without Fear, and the amazing, spectacular, sensational Spider-Man. Okay, Bill, are we ready? Sure, Paul. Oh, wait. Be right back. I need my Avengers omnibus. Uh, Where did I put that thing? While Bill looks for that, let me tell you about our new endeavor. Two True Freaks has grown, and Back to the Bins is growing with it. I, Paul Spataro, along with Bill Robinson and Scott Gardner... Just say his name three times in an email, and he'll appear in your show. Hey, how's it going? Ah, sorry, sorry. I forgot I had a Scott Gardner life model decoy in here. Be right there. Ow! Ow, who put Cap's shield there? (laughs) Anyway, we're looking to showcase various characters, storylines, issues, or whatever strikes our fancy from the world of the Avengers. Hey, Ben, move that funny-looking hammer, would you? It's, It's on that book, and I can't move it. Dad, where do you want it? Uh, over there somewhere. No! no! Watch out for the repulsor! No! Ah! Ah! Don't tell your mother. We like to call it Avengers Spotlight. I thought it was going to be called Old Avengers Never Die, They Just Get Reassembled and Sent to Another Earth. What? Too wordy? Who knows what we'll cover, and who might stop by? So join us for the Avengers Spotlight, where we'll look at Earth's greatest heroes and some of comics' greatest stories, such as the Korvac Saga, Acts of Vengeance, the Kree Skrull War, and, oh, for the love of Christ, who the hell put the Celestial Madonna Saga on this list? Huh. I found a use for that life model decoy after all. Okay, found it. We ready? <sighs> hey, wait a minute. This is the Book of the Vashanti. Forget it. See you soon, everybody. My favorite Avengers are D-Man and Green Lantern. Say goodnight, Scott. Goodnight, Scott. And we are back to jump into this week's comic, The Amazing Spider-Man number 16, the September 1964 issue. As mentioned, this issue came out in the month between Daredevil number 3, where Hornhead faced the Owl, and Daredevil number 4 with the Purple Man, and kind of completes our look at the yellow period for Daredevil. The same month saw the first Spider-Man annual, in which Spider-Man fought the Sinister Six, the Avengers were fighting Kang in Avengers number 8, and the Fantastic Four went up against Diablo in Fantastic Four number 30, 
Doctor Doom's origin was revealed in Fantastic Four Annual Number 2. And as I look at this, I realize I made an error last week. A big error. And one that probably doesn't befit me. Because last week I stated that the Hulk settled into Tales to Astonish when Daredevil number 1 was coming out. But that's not so, because Tales to Astonish number 59 came out this very month, and that had the Hulk as a guest star in an Ant-Man slash Giant-Man story. The following issue, issue 60, would have the Hulk gaining a regular feature there. That was my bad. I should have known better as a guy who does a Hulk podcast, or I should have fact-checked myself, so my apologies. The cover of the book is by the incomparable Steve Ditko, and has Daredevil swinging on a trapeze via his billy club on the left, with Spider-Man heading for Hornhead coming out of the right, with his back turned to the reader, which I know drove Stan crazy. And in the lower right-hand corner is the Ringmaster, our villain, moving his hands like he's controlling a marionette puppet. It's an image that is very askew, and it's supposed to be. Uh, this conveys the dizzying heights and the acrobatics that Daredevil and Spider-Man are having during their battle. The story is entitled Duel with Daredevil by Stan Lee with art by Steve Ditko. A Spidey story from the originators of the Webhead? And we're throwing Daredevil into it? Yes, please, let's crack this bad boy open and take a look at the story within. And the story opens with Peter Parker getting nagged at by his Aunt May to call Mary Jane Watson. Tired of her nagging, Peter decides to get out of the house to get some air as Spider-Man, and he goes web-slinging over the rooftops of New York. While out and about, Spidey spots a group of robbers fleeing a store into an alley with their loot in hand. And there is an innocent bystander in their path, which the robbers are about to dispose of to remove any witnesses. Spider-Man swings into action, taking on all of the robbers like he's a one-man army, and then wishes the blind man a good day. Of course, the blind witness is our own red-headed lawyer by day, free-wheeling vigilante by night, Matt Murdock, who changes into his Daredevil togs because he needs to get across town quick. As Daredevil swings across the city, he thinks about Spider-Man, who he places at about age 17, and he also thinks about his own powers, explaining them to the reader, before slipping back into his suit and tie to make an appearance as Matt Murdock. And let's stop there for just a moment to take a look at this opening sequence. The issue opens, like most issues from this time, with a frontispiece, a bit of a title page. These pages were a great idea. Standard practice for newsstands was to return only the covers of unsold copies for a refund. However, less than honorable newsstand owners would return the copy to get the refund and then sell the books coverless. Win-win. But with this frontispiece, the comic could still be recognized by readers. It was like a second cover. I don't know how much that played into the decision to have these in the books, but it worked. This particular frontispiece depicts Spider-Man in the center of the circus of crime who were last seen getting beaten up by the Hulk, and Spidey seems to be doing all right for himself. He's more or less holding his own, as most of the clowns and the strongmen are just nursing some bruises. However, our main man and the issue's guest star, Daredevil, are nowhere to be seen in this particular image. And let's move into the first story page and the first three panels, where Aunt May is trying to hook Peter up with Mary Jane Watson. This had been going on for a while and would go on for a while longer. Now, we future readers have the advantage of looking back and realizing that this would be a successful relationship with Mary Jane, and Mary Jane would be the best thing that would happen to Peter Parker, or the worst in some opinions. We know that Peter would one day marry MJ, and then they would, well, they would make a deal with the devil to erase it to save Aunt May's life. Now, knowing that... Let's take a look at these three panels of Aunt May nagging Peter to call Mary Jane. Who benefits most from the relationship between Peter and Mary Jane? Aunt May. It seems convenient, almost as if she knows the future. Hmm. No, I'm, I'm kidding. 
I'm not going to take a scenario where Aunt May pushes Peter into a relationship with Mary Jane just to preserve her own life. Seriously. But for a moment, just a moment, you thought about it, didn't you? Heathens. Moving away from Aunt May trying to pimp Peter out like she's Harvey Keitel from Taxi Driver or something. Let's go to the fourth panel of the book. We have Spider-Man. Never let it be said that these early tales made us wait for our heroes. He's right in it out of the gate. The segment here always gives me a chuckle. Because we have these thieves spotting poor, blind Matt Murdock. They know nothing about his radar sense, anything of that nature. But they say that he may be able to identify their voices. Think about the words. They say that he might be able to recognize... Dude, just shut your mouth instead of verbally mentioning that the witness can ID you. You've created a self-fulfilling prophecy. All I'm saying is, normally a robbery is supposed to be an in-and-out kind of thing with just a bit of stealth. You don't create a meet-and-greet afterwards with blind people. Keep your mouth shut, keep running. Luckily, Spider-Man was there to beat those robbers down before Daredevil did. I mean, these guys were screwed no matter what they did. Either we take a billy club to the teeth or webs to the gut. It must be hard being stock punching bags in the Marvel Universe. I mean, some days you just feel lucky you didn't run into the Hulk. And Matt doesn't make a move the whole time because he knows he doesn't need to. He knows Spider-Man has this locked down, and he knew that before Spider-Man even dropped down from the rooftop. This is really keen because Matt is able to assess Spider-Man. He's able to wait it out. He can guess Spider-Man's age, height, heartbeat. He's essentially doing the whole mental picture thing he does, uh, assessing Spider-Man right up. It, it's, it's like straight out of the art of war, which is based on the premise of accomplishing the most by doing the least. Spider-Man gets to beat these guys down. Matt gets an assessment of Spider-Man just to know if he's friend or foe. And then Spider-Man takes off, leaving Matt to put on his Daredevil costume. And clearly, this is for the readers who may not even know Daredevil exists complete with the full breakdown of how his powers work. And, man, Daredevil looks good under Ditko's pencils, even in the yellow costume. And that's mainly because Ditko wisely uses the same body template as Spider-Man. It's muscular, but it's aerodynamic, it's somewhat weightless. Ditko sticks to his own style rather than aping Bill Everett or Joe Orlando. And Steve Ditko is, of course, a master artist who brought his own distinctive style to the world of comics and Marvel in the Marvel Age in particular. It's very different from Jack Kirby's heavy lines, which is what we do associate with early Marvel in a lot of instances. Uh, Ditko is more in line with Will Eisner. And like Eisner, Ditko challenged the composition of a panel and a page. His action sequences have their own distinctive flair and their own pace. Ditko and Lee ran the Spider-Man comic together with varying degrees of cooperation for 38 straight issues, far from the record-setting Lee and Kirby run on Fantastic Four, but still impressive. And I mention this not just as a random piece of comic book trivia, but also because of the role Daredevil's comic will play into Spider-Man's comic, which I'm going to expand upon next week. See, I'm, I'm laying groundwork. But still, I think it's a shame that Ditko didn't get to play with Daredevil a bit more because it's really, really just a striking rendition that makes the yellow costume work, much like Wally Wood's version would. But... Getting back to the story, where Matt Murdock has just returned to the offices of Nelson and Murdock, Foggy and Karen tell Matt they are taking in a circus when he walks into the room and invite Matt to join them, you know, in spite of his handicap. Matt politely declines, primarily because of his feelings for Karen, which he feels means he should not see her socially. Speaking of the circus, we take a peek under the big tent, where preparations have begun under the watchful eye of the ringmaster who has cooked up a new plan since his defeat at the hands of the Hulk. 
He has a surefire way to get crowds into the arena by announcing that Spider-Man will be making an appearance, and has taken out newspaper ads and made posters and put them all over town, and Peter Parker sees this poster and decides to actually make an appearance as Spider-Man as all proceeds from the show go to charity. Peter stops by the Daily Bugle to see J. Jonah Jameson, who blows Peter off since he hasn't been bringing in any pictures lately, but Betty Brant doesn't blow Peter off, and after Peter politely declines her last-minute invitation to come to her apartment and eat spaghetti, Betty spots Peter's circus ticket and blows up on him. Back at the offices of Nelson and Murdoch, Foggy informs Matt that Spider-Man will be making an appearance at the circus, and Matt reconsiders and decides to take in the show. And our players converge on the circus, with Peter noting the blind man and wondering why his radar sense goes off when he is near. And as the show begins, Spider-Man does make an appearance and wows the crowd right up to the moment where the ringmaster hypnotizes Spidey with his hat and then proceeds to hypnotize the whole crowd, bringing everybody under his control. Everybody, that is, but Matt Murdock, which is a good stopping point. So jumping back to the law offices... It looks like Foggy dropped a ton of weight because he looks rather svelte and chiseled here. Karen is, of course, her normal charming self, taking it personally that Matt has to work instead of going to the circus. Though, in fairness, and I'm nothing if not fair, it is personal, so she's not wrong. And the ringmaster is cooking up a whole new scheme in that not-at-all kind of way. Because when he appeared in The Incredible Hulk, his gig was to entertain a crowd, then hypnotize them, and then steal all of their valuables. Now, his new scheme is to... Wait, it's the same thing. With better promotional material. Okay, really? I know there's nothing new under the sun, I know this, but Ringmaster and his circus of crime are on the FBI's radar. And Peter decides to show up and make an appearance as Spider-Man despite hearing about the whole event on a poster. That's the first time he's heard of this, and the only thing I can figure is that Pete hasn't been at the hero thing long enough to develop a little Admiral Akbar that pops up on his shoulder screaming, That's a trap! And let's get down to it, it's the gorilla in the room, Betty Brant and Karen Page in the same comic. The kind of bunny boiler dramatics that give all highly emotional, overly dramatic women shame. Shouldn't the appearance of these two iconic whiners cancel out the existence of the universe? I mean, we don't need the Fantastic Four to fend off Galactus, all we need is Karen and Betty on, on a megaphone. Throw in Aunt May for good measure and Galactus would be spinning on his heels faster than a kid walking in on his parents during grown-up fun time. After all, May would be trying to feed Galactus wheat cakes, and Betty and Karen question his motives for wanting to eat Earth, and coming to the conclusion that there must be some other planet in Galactus' heart. Because essentially that's what Betty does when she sees Peter's circus ticket. Even though she's springing some plans on him last minute, it must be another girl he's going to the circus for. Peter's a news photographer, how does she know that Peter isn't just going there to take pictures, and what if he just wants some guy time? I always pictured the scenario where Peter came home to find Betty cooking up some recipe for rabbit stew, all fatal attraction style, but but we don't have a rabbit, Peter thinks. Wait, where's Miss Lion? No! That's right, I made a Miss Lion joke. And we get to the circus, where Matt is setting off Peter's spider sense, which doesn't make sense, since Daredevil isn't a threat, but Peter wonders why it does go off. Now, later down the road, this wouldn't happen. I mean, I read an issue as 338 of Amazing Spider-Man where they teamed up again, and the Spider-Sense not going off was a big part of that plot. The only way I can no-prize this is, in the first instance that they met, there were malicious would-be robbers present. Would-be murderer robbers, to be accurate. And now Peter is walking into a trap. In both instances, there was an element of danger, and that could have set off his Spider-Sense. Not Daredevil himself, just 
horrible coincidence that they both happen to be there at the same time. And speaking of trap, everything plays out pretty much exactly how you would expect it, and better than the ringmaster expected because he just nabbed Spider-Man. But he didn't count on Daredevil, which we will see as we jump back into the story. Matt slips out of the hypnotized crowd and dons the yellow and blacks or yellow and browns of Daredevil. He confronts the ringmaster who orders Spider-Man to attack Hornhead. Daredevil successfully evades Spider-Man by using his hearing to detect the rise in Spider-Man's pulse right before a leap or a punch. And Daredevil keeps pace with Spider-Man in the acrobatic department, and the two foes are evenly matched, and this could go on indefinitely. But the Ringmaster is making a break for it, so Daredevil uses his billy club to grab Ringmaster's hat and break the spell over Spider-Man. Now back in his right mind, Spider-Man teams up with Daredevil as the other members of the circus rush them. As a team, Spidey and Daredevil are unbeatable as Daredevil takes on a pair of trapeze artists and Spider-Man takes on the strongmen and pretty much the rest of the circus. With the fight drawing to a close, Matt slips back into his civvies and goes back into his seat as Spider-Man mops up the rest of the circus and then grabs the ringmaster who tries to put the webhead into a trance again. This time, Spidey is prepared and keeps his eyes closed and socks the ringmaster and then releases the crowd from their trance. And in the aftermath, everyone believes they just saw a great show, unaware of the fight that ensued. As the police are hauling away the webbed-up ringmaster, Matt slips his business card into the villain's pocket should he need representation. And Spider-Man swings off as Daredevil heads back into his own book, and so ends the first meeting between the amazing Spider-Man and Daredevil, the man without fear. So... Are taking a look at this last segment, Matt is the last man standing against a circus of crime, Spider-Man, and a crowd that can be thrown against him at any moment. What does Matt do? Well, after shooting Karen and Foggy a look that says, What the f*** is wrong with you? He suits up. And he dies right in, saying, Well, I guess I have to deliver a beatdown to this whole circus. See, I should have gotten Morgan Freeman to read that line. Of course, it helps that every prop and trapeze rig leans towards Daredevil's strengths in acrobatics and weapons use, but still, he's one against many, not to mention that freaking Spider-Man is in the mix. While both are fairly evenly matched in the acrobatic department, and Spider-Man's spider-sense may be disabled by the hypnosis, think about this, one of Spider-Man's punches could literally take Daredevil's head right off, and suddenly we have this Highlander scenario where Spider-Man is the Kurgan, he takes Aunt May for a frightening ride through back alleys with the loud rock music playing, Instead, we get a relatively even fight, which, well, it's more of a game of dodge than anything else. Because actually, there's only one blow delivered, and that's by Daredevil, who puts a kick into Spidey's chest. And then Daredevil uses his noggin, and he takes the fight to the trapeze bars where both can kind of play that cat-and-mouse game. It's not the knockdown, drag-out fight that many fans may have hoped for, but it is Stanley, or if you want to give credit where credit's probably due, likely Steve Ditko, knowing how to frame a great stalemate using the elements that are actually part of the characters. However, and I don't I don't know why I'm wondering this, given the Ringmaster's penchant for not being too bright, but why is Ringmaster running away? Right now, he's got it all in his grasp. He holds the Spider-Man trump card. His gang haven't even started to rob people. They're on the sidelines, not really accomplishing much of anything. So why is he running? I'm just glad Daredevil was able to grab the right side of the hat and point it towards Spider-Man. I mean, that could have been awkward. Then there would have been some messiness in the center ring. So now that Spider-Man is released, he tells Daredevil that he owes Hornhead a favor. And Daredevil almost lets it slip that he can sense Ringmaster coming, noticing that he almost revealed the secret of his blindness. Now Matt is really bad at the secret identity game. I mean like terrible. But I kind of dig that. Because keeping a secret identity is a challenge. something that would be hard. And not everyone has been guarding a double life since they were a little kid. 
Matt uh, hid his abilities, but he didn't become Daredevil till he was a young adult. And see, when Spider-Man's free, that's when the other circus members jump into the fight. And Daredevil takes on a pair of trapeze artists who fail to catch Hornhead in a net, but mostly Spider-Man states is his show now and does the heavy lifting. And Matt slips back into the crowd and just enjoys this Looney Tunes-style fight in which Spider-Man owns a whole circus in minutes. And nothing beats Spider-Man in a top hat when he puts on the Ringmaster's hat. I mean, just add a monocle and a handlebar and you've got magic. I say, old boy, here's web in your eye. Bully. And the story's final panel has Karen being her normal, charming, caring self and telling Matt, see, you can enjoy the circus just like everyone else. Wow, everyone around Matt Murdock turns into Lloyd Christmas from Dumb and Dumber. Just patronizing that old lady, if you remember the scene by saying she can provide a service to society. I would just love to see a scenario where Matt turns around and says something like, Wow, lowly secretaries can provide a valuable service by getting me a f***ing cup of coffee. Actually, you know what? That's mean to secretaries. That is mean to secretaries, and I don't want to do that because the world functions thanks to them. Because they are aware of what's actually going on while the CEOs of great companies are working on their golf handicap. So I apologize. Let me be clear. It's directed directly at Karen Page. So overall, my take on the issue, Ditko draws a solid daredevil. Ringmaster has poor planning skills and could benefit from a secretary, and I know one who could be out of work if she wasn't a pretty blonde. Spider-Man and Daredevil, well, they go together like peas and carrots. I don't know how many times I can say that. And there's a great friendship here. And there's a very understated sort of brotherly thing. It's never quite the Dick Grayson, Tim Drake type of scenario, but they don't always like each other. They don't always agree with each other. But they know they're kind of cut from the same cloth at the core. And Matt has given Peter some guidance as the older hero, but Peter is the more popular, cooler brother. And I love seeing these two together, and this was a nice taste of things to come. And it does seem that most writers on Daredevil bring Spider-Man in at one point, from Frank Miller to Kevin Smith to Mark Wade, because it works. These characters are so similar yet different enough to make them clash and flow together smoothly. Now, if you are wanting to get your hands on this story, not only do you have Marvel Digital and Digital Unlimited, it was reprinted in Marvel Tales number 11, Giant Size Spider-Man number 3, Marvel Tales Starring Spider-Man number 154, The Mighty Marvel Team-Up Thrillers trade paperback, Marvel Masterworks volume 5, Amazing Spider-Man volume 2 hardcover, The Spider-Man Magazine number 1, Essential Spider-Man volume 1 trade paperback, Amazing Spider-Man Omnibus volume 1 hardcover, and the special trade paperback that I need to get my hands on, The Greatest Spider-Man and Daredevil Team-Ups trade paperback. Not only does that reprint this, that paperback, that trade paperback, also reprints Marvel Team-Up number 56, Marvel Team-Up number 73, Spectacular Spider-Man 26 and 27, which is the first time Frank Miller drew Daredevil, Spectacular Spider-Man number 28, Daredevil number 270, Amazing Spider-Man number 396, and Spectacular Spider-Man number 219, and I'm sure you can find that for a song. So keep an eye out for The Greatest Spider-Man and Daredevil Team-Ups Trade Paperback. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Next time, we look at an issue from Jazzy John Romita, which plays into some of the ideas I discussed in this episode. So you would almost think I planned it that way. So join me in just seven short days, and until then, remember, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark.
Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a Nat World production. The show's archives can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. To subscribe to the show, you can visit iTunes where you can leave a review, which helps the show get noticed. Or there's a handy RSS link at the website to use the podcatcher of your choice. The show is released every Sunday on all formats and emails are welcome. The address is dave at daredevilpodcast.com. While you're at it, why not friend the show on Facebook? It's easily found by searching for Dave's Daredevil Podcast or just Daredevil Podcast if you're into the whole brevity thing. The important note I'd like to make is I don't make any money off of Daredevil or any Marvel property because they are copyrighted characters that are fully owned by Marvel Comics and their parent company, Disney. I just do this to entertain, so any and all music or sound clips are for entertainment purposes only, and the copyright still belongs to the copyright holder. No infringement is intended. So please, don't sue me. It's all in good fun, and it's all for the love of comics and the love of Daredevil. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. Daredevil.